0: Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll look into God's word in Acts chapter 8. Father, we thank you that you prove yourself again and again to be worthy of our worship. Thank you that you are making a people for your own possession, and that you have invited us to be involved in that now and forever. God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would take your word, and comfort us, challenge us, cause us to submit to your truth by your grace and for your glory. Amen. Let me tell you a story to start out that happened to one of our guys recently. Eric Palazzi was headed just a week ago, just over a week ago, to celebrate the homegoing of his grandpa, Jerry Smith. On the way, he stopped at a gas station. While at the pump, a couple of rough-and-tough-looking Biker dudes pulled up to the gas station as well. Eric overheard one of them talking a lot to his buddy saying, GD this and GD that, using God's name in vain about six times in just a few sentences. Eric could have been frustrated, had a frustrated spirit. He could have looked down on this guy while getting back in his vehicle. Instead, he obeyed the prompting of the spirit and he went over to talk to them. His oldest two daughters were along for the ride and witnessed the whole thing. And their side of the story is that they were pretty nervous because those guys looked seriously imposing. (laughs) Eric very politely and kindly told them that he heard them referencing God in their conversation. And he asked the men if they had a personal relationship with the God that they were talking about. Rather than being angry, the huge guy standing up and doing most of the talking also was polite. Turns out, His name is Sean. His buddy's name is Votage. We don't know how to spell that, Votage. They not only allowed Eric to share the gospel, then to pray with them, but Sean even thanked Eric and told him how impressed he was that he was willing to approach them. He says, I'm a big black guy with tattoos, riding a motorcycle. People don't approach me. Now, those guys didn't immediately make a profession of faith, but they may yet do so. And is there any doubt in your mind that that sounds like an event orchestrated by the Spirit of God? While I'm very proud of Eric for submitting to the Spirit, the main character in the story isn't really Eric. It's the Spirit of God at work in people and through Christ's people. Around here, because of Eric's faithfulness in witnessing, he's becoming known as our resident evangelist. But Eric doesn't view himself like that. He simply wants to obey the Holy Spirit's leading in his life. In the second half of Acts chapter 8, we're inclined to be pretty impressed with Philip. In fact, this Philip is called the evangelist in order to distinguish him from the Philip who was one of the apostles. And many students of Acts call this Philip the first missionary. But as we read and study this passage this morning, it should be clear that it's about the spirits leading in Philip's life. The hero isn't Philip, the hero is God. Read with me beginning in verse 26 of Acts chapter 8. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was like this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, "'About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, "'about himself or about someone else?' "'Then Philip opened his mouth, "'and beginning with this scripture, "'he told him the good news about Jesus. "'And as they were going along the road, "'they came to some water, and the eunuch said, "'See, here is water. "'What prevents me from being baptized?' "'And he commanded the chariot to stop, "'and they both went down into the water, "'Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. "'And when they came up out of the water,' The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. But he went away, went on his way rejoicing. Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. I view this section about Philip as a microcosm of evangelistic missions, sort of a closer look at the Spirit's leading and obedient evangelism and God's superintendence of situations, and a responsive heart, and ongoing missions. I want you to think about these four categories as we go through the text, especially if you're a note taker. I gave you a handout today. And so as we go through the text, you can take notes and put them in, those, in one of those four buckets as we go in order through the text. But the first really is the primary one. Let the Holy Spirit's leading sink into us this morning. He is the power of God to guide the servant, and he is the power of God to transform the sinner. Then also, there are these other three things you could pay close attention to. Notice Philip's humble and willing obedience to be an instrument of the Spirit of God. Consider, too, the simple truth that evangelism is the tool or the weapon that God has given to proclaim the message of the Bible concerning Jesus. Finally, there are very real people on the other end. God has his sights set on individuals he is making his own, even as he has done for you. I know you'll see this as we continue, but obviously um, uh, studying God's word is not meant to be an intellectual exercise. This is the word of God which he uses to shape our desires, and he uses it to shape our plans, to reveal our sin, and to give us a greater goal, which is himself. So be asking, whom do we trust? Be asking, who will go? There are many other things that we do from the love of Christ overflowing in us, but what is the one thing we must Do. And are we not comforted as we go through this text in belonging to this great God? Are we not compelled to serve him faithfully, knowing that whatever he tells us to do is his highest glory and our greatest good? If if metaphors help you as they do me, picture it like this: the Holy Spirit is the archer, Philip becomes his bow. Evangelism is the arrow, and the Ethiopian's heart is the bullseye. Philip does not need to be the Holy Spirit's only bow. Verse 26. Look at verse 26. Now, you are unlikely to receive an angelic instruction, (laughs) But the Holy Spirit may, in fact, and does in, in, in many ways, tug on our hearts with great specificity. When you talk to a lot of people who especially are inclined to become missionaries, there are times where God tugs on their hearts with very great specificity towards specific places and people groups. It's amazing what God can do when we're sensitive to the Spirit's leading. So Philip here is told to go take the road that goes from down from Jerusalem to Gaza, and Luke has this editorial comment, this is a desert place. Philip had just participated in a great revival in Samaria, a major city, tons of people responding to the gospel, and now he's told to go where? Do what? Who's going to be on the road between Jerusalem and Gaza? But, verse 27, Philip rose and went. But only after lots of questioning and complaining, lots of worrying. Nope. Philip rose and went. Why would he do this? Because Philip is not the Lord of his life anymore. Philip's not in charge. Philip knows he serves a great God. However the Spirit leads, that's where he'll go. And who's on the other end of this evangelistic mission? Here we find out that this man was from Ethiopia. Ethiopia at this time had a large and influential kingdom south of Egypt, which many would have thought as the the southernmost part of the known world at the time. Ethiopia was the ancient Nubian kingdom south of of Aswan on the Nile. Another thing to note about this guy is that both Jewish and Greco-Roman literature frequently mentioned black skin as a distinguishing feature of Ethiopians. And and of course, that would be true of many as you ventured south into Africa. The term eunuch could refer generally to a government official, but since Luke mentions that specifically as well, that he's a court official, it's more likely to be intended as literal. In ancient times, this would have involved the castration of some males for royal service, perhaps especially those who were... To work closely with female royalty. I'll leave it there. It also says that he was a treasurer for the queen. Candace, the name mentioned of the queen, seems to have been a a dynastic title of the queen of Ethiopia. So, what we're supposed to realize is that he's an important guy, he's an important guy in Ethiopia. But from a Jewish perspective, he's an unlikely candidate to be chosen by God. But you, the reader of the New Testament, should know better. The world would like to tell you that we're all deserving. You're special. But we know better. We're all unlikely candidates. The second half of verse 27 and into verse 28, what situation do we find this man in? He's returning from worship in Jerusalem. That's surprising in and of itself. That wouldn't have been a common journey for someone like him. He has to go through Egypt all the way up to worship the God of the Jews in Israel. He's probably a Gentile God-fearer, but not likely to have been a full proselyte especially if we're to understand his being a eunuch as literal, since the law would have prevented him from becoming a proselyte. It also would have barred him from entry into the inner courts of the temple, but it doesn't prevent him from going and worshiping God in Jerusalem. And we find him seated in his chariot, of course, again, He's not all he's not only important he's well to do. This is basically like saying he's driving the company Lexus or maybe the private jet. Nobody almost nobody would have been riding in a chariot. They would have been walking. But God reaches people from all walks of life, including the wealthy who will humble themselves before him. The Bible doesn't tell us that it's impossible for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God, only that it's difficult because they tend to trust in their riches instead of recognizing their need. Not so with this man. He's also well-educated. He can read, and it was common at that time for them to read aloud. He's reading from a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. While, While we'll see the specific text, it's informative for you, for me, to know that it's through Isaiah that God promises a heritage that is quote, better than sons and daughters to the foreigner or to the eunuch who keeps faith in him. That comes in Isaiah chapter 56. And now in our text, we're at verse 29. It is the spirit who instructs Philip at this point to go over and join his chariot. And what's, what I love about this is that on the one hand, Philip receives a command from an angel. And then on the other hand, there's something like this that happens more often to you and me. I didn't hear a specific voice, but I felt compelled by the Spirit of God who dwells in me to go do something, and I guess I would say it like he told me. (laughs) So that could be what happens to Philip here, but he obeys. As we said, the Spirit's leading is strongly emphasized throughout this passage, being the key feature which ties it all together. And again, is there really any doubt that this situation is divinely arranged? Verse 30 Philip obeys without hesitation, and the fact that he has to run might indicate that the chariot was moving forward as the Ethiopian official is reading aloud from Isaiah. At this point, when Philip overhears the Ethiopian reading scripture, and not just any scripture, he overhears him reading from Isaiah 53, I can't help but picture Philip being overwhelmed with amazement at God. Are you kidding me? I wasn't sure what I was getting into when I started walking from Jerusalem to Gaza. I had no idea what what was going to happen. And then I come up and see this guy, and I feel the Spirit's inclination, and I hear him reading from Isaiah. Not only is he reading from Isaiah, but he's reading about the sacrificial Lamb of God. Are you kidding me? Only God could orchestrate something like this. Philip must be praising God and praying for wisdom and words for how to proceed while he climbs up into the chariot. If we've walked with Christ for very long and humbly ask, if we've, hum, if we've walked for Christ for very long and if we've humbly asked God to use us, even we have experienced things like this. Situations and movements of the Spirit of God in ways that might be subtle, but it's abundantly clear that God himself providentially orchestrated it. We're no Philips, and yet God is doing such things in people like us and through people like us. But that's the point, isn't it? Who's Philip? That's not the question. Who's Philip's God? Who's this Ethiopian? But who graciously grants him spiritual life and saving faith and becomes Lord over his present and eternity? That's the question. What a God we serve. I'd like to stop just for a second to ask you, whom do you serve? Do you serve the puny God of man-made religion? Do you serve the puniest God of all, yourself? Your own whims? Your own plans? Or do you serve this God? Revealed in the Bible. The end of verse 30 and into verse 31, following up, Philip going, Are you kidding me? This might be my favorite part. Philip says, Do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian answers, Well, how can I unless someone guides me? Are you kidding me? God directed Philip to be there in this spot, in this exact time, with this precise person to be a guide, to lead the way. Philip was just a spirit-filled person who said yes to the Spirit's prompting. The disciples had, had needed Jesus to guide them through, the, through understanding how he fulfilled some, uh, so many promises and patterns in the Old Testament. And here, Philip joins him up in his chariot. And it doesn't take too much imagination to, the, to believe that Philip never saw himself doing this. In a chariot with an Ethiopian court official reading the prophet Isaiah together and testifying that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah who came to atone for sin and who rose again. God's plans are higher and better than our own. Verses 32 and 33, in this section, I'm fairly confident that what Luke gives us is is a sampling of what he was reading, or at least that we're also meant to understand the context of this quotation in Isaiah. The reason I think that is because they, they didn't have chapters and verses to mark the location in the text. So Luke quotes a part of it so that we know what passage to bear in mind. So not only are these words perfect, but the context is really important too. And I'll, I'll tell you about that in just a second as we continue to verse 34. It, the eunuch's understanding is also, or his uncertainty of understanding is also understandable. Even the Jews at times disagreed about whether the, servant, the suffering servant passages referenced Israel or the prophet himself, or some even actually believing that the Messiah was referenced as the suffering servant. We see God's superintendence here, since we know the latter is the case. And that's true in the whole context of Isaiah 53. Verses 1 through 3 talk about the suffering servant um, being rejected by Israel. Verses 4 through 12 say that he bears the sins of Israel, although he himself is not guilty, verse 9, and he suffers voluntarily, verse 12. And verse 35 tells us, then Philip opened his mouth. What a weird way to say it, Luke. Then Philip opened his mouth. Oh, he's deliberately playing on the wording of the passage in Isaiah. The Greek words, exactly the same here where the suffering servant, our Lord Jesus Christ, opened not his mouth to defend himself against false accusations, but he, because he was going willingly to die in order to be the atonement and perfect mediator we need. So because of Christ, Philip can now open his mouth to speak of the one who did this very thing for us that we might be saved. And saying it like that, Philip opened his mouth also makes me think that what came out wasn't from Philip, but from the Spirit of God expressed in the Word of God. So Philip does what Jesus did for his disciples after the resurrection, where he explained that, that he, the Christ, fulfilled many promises and patterns in Old Testament scriptures. So we're told, beginning with this scripture, he evangelized him about Jesus. Jesus. If you're just a weapon wielded in the hands of the Spirit, or to use another New Testament scriptural metaphor, Ephesians 6, 17, if God's word is a sword wielded in the hands of his servant, don't you think that the Holy Spirit can help you get to the gospel? There's no shortage of evangelistic arrows in the Holy Spirit's quiver. Yes, it's true, there's only one message, but there are many ways to get to it. The more you make a practice of sharing the gospel, the more you will understand what I mean. If you want to talk to uh, other people that you know who who make a practice of witnessing frequently and ask them, ask them this simple question, how do you turn every conversation into a conversation about spiritual things? And they have so much practice, they will tell you. And while the Holy Spirit is guiding you, yes, don't you think that the real power is in the word of God? Hebrews 4.12 says, the spirit of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing, dividing to soul and spirit. And don't you have to trust in God to do the work by his spirit and not by your ingenuity or even your persistence? Can we do the work that only the Spirit of God can do through his word? You've probably heard it recommended to you that when you're witnessing to someone, if you, ha- if you can, open up your Bible and let them read passages of God's word that you're referencing. Let them read it. What does Romans say? Let them read it. The Spirit of God takes the word of God to convict us. God takes his own truth in the Bible about his own son by the power of his own spirit, and he cuts to the heart. He takes stone hearts, and he makes them beat with spiritual life. He turns the rebellious into the repentant. He takes the unrighteous and makes her righteous. He takes the sinner and makes him a saint. He makes the lost found, the blind see, the deaf hear, the spiritually lame walk. Now we come to verses 36 and 38. And in this amazing case, that's what the Spirit does here. The Ethiopian official is so excited to believe in Jesus and to state it publicly that he wants to be baptized at the first sight of enough water to do so. And there wouldn't have been very many places to baptize in the desert place, Luke said. But in the providence of God, when he trusts in Christ, probably before they reach Gaza, they come to some wadi, which is some place where the river had been flowing. And then it stops in a pool of water. And when it rains, it would fill just enough to baptize this guy. And they they go down into the water. and, And this Ethiopian does show does this to show outwardly what faith has done to him inwardly, what the Spirit has done. He goes into the water to show that he is washed clean by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He goes into the water to show that he has died to self and has been raised to new life in Christ, forgiven and made new by the power and the grace of God. What a God. Now, before we move on, I should make a brief note to you, and verse 37 may be missing in some of the translations that you have in your text, and that's because there are some manuscripts that have verse 37, but some of our best manuscripts do not. But verse 37 might read in your text, Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. It's hard to say if that's original or or something a copyist or teacher added as they were explaining what necessarily would have taken place in his heart. And while it's hard to say with certainty, if it's original, it's definitely consistent with other teaching in God's Word, and it is an accurate depiction of what would have taken place, even as we just described. Let's look at the next unique thing that God does with Philip, verses 39 and 40. The Spirit makes Philip just disappear. He goes from one place and, is, and reappears in Azotus, miles away. In fact, it says Philip found himself. <laughs> he, he, he's like, where am I now? Hey, somebody tell me where I am. Last I knew, I was standing in the water with the Ethiopian eunuch. Where am I now? Oh, you're in Azotus. Okay, then. This may very well be a -a one-of-a-kind, unique work of the Spirit. It's certainly not common. It may also be a reflection of something the Spirit did at times in great power with the likes of of the great prophets of old, like Elijah and Ezekiel. If you want to know the scripture references for this, you can go to the online (laughs) notes um, of the sermon. You might be able to find them later this afternoon uh, from our website. Either way, the point is supposed to be the unique power and leading of the Spirit. Well, Philip's gone, but the eunuch continues on his way rejoicing. What kind of joy do you think this is? What kind of joy did you experience again this morning when you were singing of what Christ had done done for you? This is the rejoicing of a creature who has just been brought from death to life, who has just Seen Jesus as Lord and received the Holy Spirit to have a relationship with the only true God. Maybe you're lacking joy because you don't belong to Jesus Christ. Or maybe you're lacking joy because you've taken your eyes off of Christ and placed them on your tumultuous surroundings like Peter did when he walked on the rough sea to Jesus. Go to God's word and remember what Christ has done for you. Bask in the light of God's glory and feel the warmth of his goodness. What a God I get to belong to and serve. In that there is joy. And in him there is peace. In him there is rest. In him there is assurance. Not just now, but forever And where does all of this end up at the end of this passage? Look at verse 40 again. I love the way this finishes, and we're only going to mention it briefly. But Philip carries on in the spirit, now walking again on his two feet, (laughs) along the coastal region, evangelizing in all the towns as he goes. The last we see Philip for now, he's in Caesarea. And while it's possible this was already his hometown. That's not what I think happens here. I suspect this is this actually became his hometown. I believe this is the place where he decided to live as a more long-term missionary. When we hear of Philip again in Acts chapter twenty-one and verse eight with Paul and his compatriots, of whom Luke is one, we hear it like this: Acts twenty, Acts, Acts twenty-eight or twenty-one, verse eight. And the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of whom? Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. And we find out that Philip now has a family, and he has three grown daughters who aren't married yet, and they are in Christ We'll have other encounters in Caesarea, so we can talk about that port city in more detail later. For now, we're left with this impression that Philip settles there for longer-term missionary work. Here's what I want to end with as the bottom line. Are we to be impressed with Philip or enthralled with God? There shouldn't be any doubt that this is about the Spirit's leading. The Spirit's leading to prompt to guide, and to empower God's servants. The Spirit empowers the servants. The Spirit superintends situations. The Spirit saves sinners. The servants eagerly obey His his guidance to be His instruments. And then the tool, the weapon of the servants is evangelizing proclaiming the good news about Jesus Christ from God's word. That's our sword. The actual changing of hearts is in God's hands. So along these lines, I have three closing applications. It it does need to be said, although it's not the emphasis in the text here, it will be in other places, but our obedience to evangelize does not mean that a person will respond appropriately. Rejection is a frequent response from hardened hearts. Remember, they are not rejecting us, but God. And so your obedience may be a part of God's judgment on hardened hearts. We just obey. Secondly, here too is an invitation to missions. If God uses spirit-filled Christians like Philip to reach the lost, as you yourself once were, There are people on the other end. Who will go to Caesarea? Who will go? Sorry. Who will go to Venezuela? Who will go to Indonesia? Who will go to Morocco? Or how about this? Who will open their mouth to let the Spirit speak from God's word To your neighbor, to your sibling, to your lost coworker, to your friend at school. And finally, faithfulness and obedience to God makes us more sensitive to the Spirit's leading, just as repeated patterns of sin sear our conscience or dull our sensitivity to the Spirit's leading. You might think to yourself, You know, that thing that happened to Eric at the gas station, that doesn't happen to me. Faithfulness and obedience to God makes us more sensitive to the Spirit's leading. We do have to start obeying. Let me tell you another story from our church family. In 2018, Jason Thompson and Rob Holland had the privilege to attend the Shepherd's Conference at Grace Community Church in California. That might be best known to you as John MacArthur's church. There they met a man from India who was alone at the conference. So they invited him to share meals with them, et cetera, so he wouldn't be by himself. They became such good friends with Sukumar in such a short time that hindsight reveals this as God's providence. Sukumar visited them here and shared his heart for pastors there in India to be better equipped in their preaching. One thing led to another, and pretty soon, Sukumar was asking Jason and Rob to preach a couple of times to his church in India through a translator. They wanted to go visit, but COVID prevented it. They were humbled but uncertain, but they were willing to serve God if this was the Spirit's leading. And in 2021, two years later, this grew into a conference that Sukumar had invited other pastors to join. So that they could hear examples of expository preaching from God's Word. And then two years after that, this Friday and Saturday, it took place again right here on this platform with even more pastors on the other end, 98 I think, and even more of our guys being invited into what God is doing. I know Jason and Rob are greatly humbled and grateful to the Lord, and they seek no credit for themselves. And the reason I'm telling you this story, I'm so humbled that this time it felt like our church family was hosting, and I, for one, did nothing to make this happen. Nothing. The theme of the conference was by his doing. Is there any question this opportunity was by God's doing? It should humble me. It should humble us. What a God we serve. Let's pray. Father God, we worship you because you prove yourself again and again to be the only God. we are so humbled and so thankful that we desire to respond in you with the gratitude of obedience. We get to belong to you and we want to serve you. Help us to be faithful around one another because you have given your people as a body to work together And this local church is a microcosm of your bigger church. And God, we just want you to use us and to grow us. Make yourself look so great that nobody's saying, look at them. People are saying, look at their God. You chose the weak things and the things that are not to put to shame the things that are. When we are weak, you are strong. Humble us still further, God, so that you will look amazing. We love you and we thank you for the privilege of belonging to you. In Jesus' name, amen.